Hello and welcome back for another episode of Our Foundations. This is the second episode in our Agorism series, and this one specifically is our money episode, so it will focus on Agorism as it relates to markets, roughly. We'll talk about money and finance and buying things or not and that kind of stuff. So that's what today's episode is on. We'll start off with things as in physical items and things that you would buy and where you would buy, that kind of stuff. We got into a little bit of that on the last episode about where to buy food, but that was uh, food specific. We focused on the things you need to survive, food, energy, water, that kind of stuff. So this episode is on everything else related to markets and money and that kind of stuff. So we'll talk about stuff first, and then we'll move into money specifically. So topics like finances and taxes and investing, that type of thing. We'll mention cryptocurrencies, just everything related to money and finance and that kind of stuff. And that's probably all we'll do for this episode today. And then the next episode, we'll pick back up and wrap up our section on agorism, at least our overview section, and we'll cover things related to self-education, what types of things should you be looking into, and give you some pointers and some direction and where to look, as well as how do you make an impact on society, on your community, and how do you participate in activism, but doing this stuff from an agorist perspective. How do you do that outside of the state and outside of governmental politics? And so that's what we'll get into next time, and we'll move on from there into examples of agorism. Before we officially get started with the episode, I do want to start us off with some quotes from Konkin himself, who coined the term agorism, and we'll start with that so we can kind of get in the mood before we dive in. Let's start off with this first one from the New Libertarian Manifesto, and that was where he really spelled out agorism and counter-economics. So, starting here, quote, Libertarianism, as developed to this point, discovered the problem and defined the solution. The state versus the market. The market is the sum of all voluntary human action. If one acts non-coercively, one is part of the market. Thus did economics become part of libertarianism. Libertarianism investigated the nature of man to explain his rights deriving from non-coercion. It immediately followed that man, which would be woman, child, Martian, etc., had an absolute right to his life and other property, and no right to the life or property of others. Thus did objective philosophy become part of libertarianism. Libertarianism asked why society was not libertarian now, and found the state, its ruling class, its camouflage, and the heroic historians striving to reveal the truth. Thus did revisionist history become part of libertarianism. End quote. And he goes on to talk about other aspects that worked its way into libertarianism and why and how that's related, but that's beyond our scope for today. So let me read one more quote from Konkin. This is specifically on counter-economics. Quote, 
The function of the pseudo science of establishment economics, even more than making predictions for the ruling class, as did the imperial Roman augurs, is to mystify and confuse the ruled class as to where their wealth is going and how it is taken. An explanation of how people can keep their wealth and property safe from the state, then, is counter-establishment economics, or counter-economics for short. The actual practice of human action that evades, avoids, and defies the state is counter-economic activity. So that should be a good refresher for where we are, what agorism is. It is all things related to voluntary transactions outside of the scope of the state, outside of any regulations, and working amongst each other in a way that is just between one person and another, in a voluntary way, no coercion, no force, ideally no state involvement whatsoever. That is agorism, and that also is counter-economics. How do you do that outside of the system and adapt your ways to operate this way? That is counter-establishment economics. It's counter to the economic system that the state provides and therefore is counter-economics. So let's go ahead and get started with the first section on roughly physical items, services, basically the market. When you're going to go out and spend money on something, you are involving yourself in the market. Now, ideally, as Konkin said, the market is comprised of voluntary transactions, and that's where one party wants something and is willing to give up something else for it. The other party is willing to take that something else and give them the something, and both parties are happy. Both parties profit in whatever way they desire to profit, and they both walk away with what they were wanting. And there's no problems. There's no coercion. There's no force. There's no regulation. There's no taxes. There's no nothing. It's just people voluntarily transacting together. So that's the goal. That's the ideal market situation. But that's not necessarily what we have. So we will talk about that stuff, but let's first start off with stuff that's at least better than what the mainstream options are? How can you at least work your way towards this? Well, first, to begin with, a minimalistic lifestyle in general would be the way to go. And to get away from materialism and consumerism, be happy with what you have, be content with what you have, focus on things like relationships and family and experiences nature, things like this that are usually free and that have a lot more benefits than just buying a new pair of shoes or getting a cooler car or nicer clothes or whatever the stuff is that you would buy. So having that mentality in general is probably the number one thing. But beyond that, let's say you do need something or at least want it to the point that you have decided you're definitely going to get it. There are a few options to do before you just go out and buy it at a store or buy it anywhere. The first thing to do would be to see if there's any way you can reuse something you already have or something that someone else has or repurpose something for the need that you have and to satisfy whatever it is you are trying to accomplish. So let's say you need a bookshelf in your kid's room to store his kid's books on. Well, instead of just going out to the store, whether it be Walmart for some cheap little bookshelf or 
even a thrift store or to a furniture store and buying something nice and all solid wood and whatever. Instead of doing any of that and going out and going to a store, see if there is a way you can repurpose something you already have. Maybe you have an old dresser that you don't need and you can just add, take out the drawers, add bottoms where the drawers used to be, and voila, you have a bookshelf. Or maybe you have some scrap wood lying around or some pallets and you can tear down whatever it was, get your scrap wood, and build a small set of bookshelves. Bookshelves are pretty easy to build. It's not a big deal. Or maybe there's an entertainment center that a friend or family member has that they're giving away, or you find it on Craigslist, and you pick it up and use it for your bookshelf. Or maybe someone just has a bookshelf to give away. But the point is that there are often ways that you can satisfy needs, maybe not to the ideal form that you would ideally want, but ways that you can satisfy them and do so in a purely agorist manner and fashion. So that would be the first goal is see if there is some way you can reuse or repurpose something you already have. You're recycling old goods. And this has lots of benefits because number one, it gets you what you want without having to go out and buy something from the store. So you're saving money. Number two, you are helping the environment because you are reusing something that would have either gone into the dump or you would have bought something else, which means that something else would have had to have been created, which means there was factory work and labor involved, and that creates necessarily a certain amount of pollution, who knows how much, and it really depends on the item. I can't go too deep here, but the point is you are not creating demand for more new things. Instead, you are using your old things. So it's cheaper. It is allowing you to not have to participate in the market and not have to create new items and new demand. And it also keeps tax money away from the state. So you are defunding the state. And that is one of the other goals of counter-economics and agorism. So that's one really good example. The first thing to do is look around, try to take advantage of this stuff. And in the same thought line, if you have something that you're going to get rid of, think about if it's something that you might be able to reuse or repurpose in the future. You don't want to become a pack rat and just stuff your garage full of a bunch of useless crap. But it should be fairly obvious if said item is something that is likely to be reused in the future or that is made out of stuff that is easy to reuse for many different purposes or if it's just junk that you'll probably never use. You know, anything has a possibility of being used in the future, but if it's only a 1% chance that you're ever going to touch that thing again, then go ahead and get rid of it. But if there is a 50-50 chance that it might come in handy in the future, it might be worth holding on to it, depending on your situation, if you have storage, that kind of stuff. So have this mindset, being minimalistic and using and reusing the things that already are in existence. Another aspect would be if you're disposing of things, you can recycle, which would be an ideal. So any papers, plastic, glass, whatever. A lot of places have recycling where they'll pick it up from your house. Sometimes you have to take it somewhere. It's really not that hard to take it somewhere. That's what 
my wife and I do. We keep it in totes and we have them sorted out and then just run to the recycling center. You just dump them in the corresponding containers and that's it. You go home. It's really simple, really easy, not difficult at all. But beyond recycling, burning trash is another option. You don't want to burn things like plastics and things that will pollute into the air. That's not good. We also do want to take care of the environment. We don't want to hurt other people. You heard from the quote from Konkin, we have no right to take someone else's property or use force or that would include pollute someone else's property and their environment. So that is not something that we would do if we are trying to be purely agorist. But we can burn plenty of other things. Anything that's paper-related, you know, cardboard and old newspapers, junk mail, whatever. Anything that's burnable that is not polluting the environment. Paper products, wood products, just use common sense. It should be pretty obvious. But that is another good way that you can dispose of things, recycling and burning. The other thing would be giving away stuff, and that could include giving to a friend or family member or taking it to a local thrift store or putting it up on Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace or somewhere and just let someone have it or give it to somebody. That's another great option that encourages the concept of reusing and repurposing and recycling basically keeping old things in circulation. So within that vein, let's talk about things like yard sales. We've got plenty of marketplaces that are very agorist in principle and in concept and in practice. Yard sales is one very good example of that. You can go to a yard sale and actually participate in a pure market transaction, a totally voluntary transaction. You give someone money, they give you something, you both are happy and you walk away. 90-something percent of the time, no one is going to be submitting that and paying taxes. They didn't have to get a business license in order to sell you these goods and put them up for sale in general. And the state really has absolutely nothing to do with it. So that's a really good thing. Yard sales are great. Anything that's peer-to-peer that's between one person and another is a great way of doing this. You can do this not just through yard sales, although that's kind of the classical example, but more of a modern example would be Craigslist, where people post things on Craigslist. Sometimes they give it away for free. Sometimes they're selling it, but it ends up typically being a transaction from one person to another totally voluntary and totally true to the agorist principle. So that's a really good option here. Now, Facebook also has options for marketplaces, and there's plenty of other sites that do this and apps that do this. So Craigslist, just an example, but you get the theme and you can apply that to whatever works for you and whatever you're aware of, whatever you like, so on and so forth. The next step up or down, I should say, would be that if you do have to go somewhere that is related to the state in some way, then go as little as possible to somewhere that has as little interaction as possible. Now, the obvious examples here that are related to face-to-face, peer-to-peer interactions would be something like an estate sale. An estate sale is connected officially to the state. There will be taxes that are paid and there is a record of that. There are certain regulations, that kind of stuff, but it's still at least limited in its relationship to the government and laws and regulations and taxes and that kind of stuff. 
the other example would be for an actual store, but a thrift store. So instead of buying something brand new from a big international corporation, you are buying something that's used from generally a smaller business that is oftentimes supporting a good cause and supporting your local community. That's at least what most of the thrift stores around my local area do. And I know that many are participating in this kind of stuff. You have places like America's Thrift or Goodwill or plenty of other examples of thrift stores that not only allow you to reuse and repurpose things that are already existing so you're not contributing to new demand of consumerist materials, but they are also contributing in a positive way to a local community. So it's a win-win. They do pay taxes to the state. They do have a business license. They are renting property and landlords paying taxes. You know, there's all kinds of web branches that spread out and are attached to the state. But it is at least a better option than going to Walmart or some other big store. Now, what if you do want to go a little more pure agorist and something that is off the beaten path in a way, at least off a path that is state-maintained, there are options for you. So to begin with, I would say that the dark web would be the place to go if you want to participate in a voluntary market that is outside of the state. I do need to clarify that because the dark web is outside of state control and state regulation, you are responsible for taking care of yourself, for educating yourself on how that works, what the risks are, how to protect yourself, all that kind of stuff. There's a lot involved there. Don't just randomly search on the internet for the dark web. How do I get on and then go on there and try to buy something? Do a little bit of research first if you are wanting to go that route. The first really good example of a marketplace on the dark web that really took off and got very popular was the Silk Road. You've probably heard of this. It got a lot of media attention. But what happened was a man named Ross Ulbricht, he created this site, the Silk Road, and created this basically decentralized marketplace that was a lot like a Craigslist or an eBay, but it was completely off the radar. It was completely out of government control, and it allowed people to just interact one to another and buy and sell anything they wanted in a voluntary manner. Now, obviously, this got used for things like drugs and weapons and things that the state was not very happy with people participating in, nor were they happy with someone setting up a market that was totally out of their jurisdiction, that they were getting no taxes from, and they had no say-so in what was going on. They couldn't track it. They couldn't control it. They couldn't regulate it. They couldn't tax it. They couldn't do anything. And the state was not very happy with this. So, of course, when they found out who it was and who was responsible, they threw the book at him. He got a double life sentence plus 40 years, I believe. He was charged with all kinds of crimes. There's a whole long list of everything he was charged with. And he got a much worse sentence than anybody that was busted who was actually selling drugs, buying drugs, selling weapons, all this kind of stuff. There were apparently two hits that were put out on people on the marketplace. So someone wanted someone else to get killed and posted an ad for someone to do that. And Ross originally was charged with being responsible for that. And those charges were later dropped. But he was hit with many other things. Like I said, double life sentences plus some and he is currently, obviously, in jail still. 
unless by the time you hear this, maybe he would have gotten a pardon, and that would be wonderful. I think that's what a lot of people are hoping for, but it's not extremely likely, so we'll just see. There's actually petitions that are out there. You can go online, sign up on a petition if you want to show your support for Ross and against this type of treatment, then do so. But Ross has gotten a worse sentence than drug cartel leaders, than murderers, than rapists, than all kinds of people like this. Much worse sentence than all of them combined. And all he did was build a website where people can transact amongst each other. That's all he did. He did not actually facilitate drug deals or weapons deals or buy drugs himself and sell them to somebody else. He wasn't involved. He just built a website where people can do whatever people want to do, and that's it. The state just got really upset that it was out of their control. So now the Silk Road is offline. Now, there was also a lot of controversy with all of this because when they did shut it down, they found out that some of the investigating officers who were on the state side were also funneling money out of the site, and there's a lot of corruption that was found out. It turned out that there was some evidence that was tampered with, and the login name for the guy that ran the Silk Road was the Dread Pirate Roberts, as in from the Princess Bride movie. If you've seen it, you should get the analogy here. And the idea in the movie is that the Dread Pirate Roberts is this pirate, but in reality, it changes people. So sometimes it's this guy, then this guy retires, and someone else takes over. But it's always under the same name. And many people in the general public just think it's the same guy. Well, that was the idea with the Silk Road. That person, whoever it was, was leading it. But all indications are that it swapped between multiple people. And there was actually a record of DPR, Dread Pirate Roberts, logging on months after Ross Ulbricht was actually arrested and in custody. So obviously it wasn't him. But despite all of these issues and all the corruption that was involved, he still is in jail and still got crucified as an example to anybody else that would dare to think of doing something like this. So, moving on from those examples, now that the Silk Road is shut down, there are many other marketplaces that popped right back up in its place, so there are many options on the dark web still. If you don't want to do the dark web, the other wonderful technology that exists nowadays is blockchain. And we will actually do a full set of episodes, just like we're doing on Agorism now. We'll do a full set on blockchain and cryptocurrencies here in a while. Uh, I don't know how long it'll take to get there, but that is a few series from now. We'll get into that. But as an example now, there is an app, a platform, whatever you want to call it, called Open Bazaar. And that one is one where you can participate in a marketplace that is peer-to-peer, and you buy and sell things with cryptocurrencies, and it's something that is outside of state jurisdiction. It's international. It's a lot like the dark web options. And by using blockchain and taking advantage of that technology, they're able to do this in a secure way and an independent way. So that's another option. There are multiple markets out there that exist that are not within the state's jurisdiction. So you do have options. Even the guy on the street corner that's selling bootleg DVDs or the person on the street in New York City selling fake Rolexes, there's lots of options all over the place. And 
you can take advantage of whichever ones that fit your style and that would be of use to you and useful to you. As I've said before in other episodes, I am not promoting illegal activity. I am not telling you to participate in illegal activity. I am just giving you all the options that exist out there from a at least slightly objective perspective. So this is the information. Do with it what you will. So moving on. The next option when we move away from markets, even decentralized ones, is to not be involved in a market at all. Well, what do you do then if you need stuff? You make it yourself. That's the very simple way of doing it. Now, the first example would be one where you do have to buy something first, whether it be first-hand or second-hand, buy a 3D printer. Now, this sounds like it would be complicated, expensive, all that kind of stuff, but nowadays, 3D printers are pretty cheap. You can get one, a good one, for a few hundred bucks and print off pretty much anything you would need, at least within the scope of what 3D printers do, and there is a lot you can do with one. So you buy a 3D printer, then you buy the material, which is really cheap, and there's different types of materials, different qualities, different finishes, different colors. There's lots of different options here, and when you have the printer and you have the material to print with, basically you just either create your own file from like a CAD program or something similar to that, or you can download free stuff online, or you can pay for designs if you wish, but you can print thousands of different types of things with this 3D printer. And it's super cheap. It's fairly simple to do. It's quick in general compared to, say, ordering something on Amazon and waiting two days for it to be delivered. You can often print something and it takes a few hours to print. If it's something super complicated, it can take a day or more to do. There are some things that are very time-consuming, but really just depends on the amount of detail and the level of complication that's involved. But for some examples of what you could print, maybe you need to hang something on the wall and you need some sort of bracket. Well, you can print off a bracket and then use it. Maybe you need a hinge to put on a door on a cabinet or something random like that. You need some kind of hinge. Well, print off a hinge. That's pretty easy to do. What about toys for kids? Yes, you can do that. You can print off little animals, little action figures, who knows what, whatever your kid's into, you can do that. I have a friend whose kid is into some kid show, and I don't even really know what it is. There's something related to animal-type people, and they have these discs, and these discs are supposed to power their suit or something. I, I really don't know. I'm kind of lost in this. But the point is that the kid likes these discs, and they're these power discs, and they're really cool, and he really wants some. Well, his dad was able to design a power disc on his computer and then print them off. He does have a 3D printer. And so now the kid can get power discs and it's not free, but it's pretty close to free and the dad can create it. And that's really cool. That's a really cool thing you can do, but you can print off really any type of small toy. You can print off a chess set or a checkers set if you so desire. And that could be of any design you can think of. So you can do a Star Wars chess set if you want or whatever. I'm sure there are plenty of board games that you can create on your own by printing all the pieces for them. So there's some options there. What about a more practical everyday things? Something like a phone case. Yes, you can 3D print a phone case. 
You can 3D print zip ties. You can do hangers. You can even do tools. There are wrenches and screwdrivers and stuff that actually do work that you can just print. There are even more complicated things. So the best example would be guns. Yes, you can 3D print a gun. You can 3D print the majority of the parts for an AR-15 if you want to get fairly complicated. If you want to stick with the basics, you've got the first 3D gun ever created, and that one was called the Liberator, and it's a one-shot pistol that I believe is 100% 3D printed. Now, I'm not positive. I'll have to look back into this, and I'll probably get back to you on the examples episode because I do plan on covering Cody Wilson who did design this first 3D gun and others afterwards but if I remember right I think you need like a roofing nail that acts as a firing pen and other than that it's entirely plastic and entirely 3D printed so you have the power to defend yourself and to arm yourself without having to get permission without having a record of what you have and in a much cheaper manner because all you have to do is pay for the materials you get the software for free usually and bam you've got what you need so moving on from the 3d printer there are plenty of other examples of making your own things the best examples that are very practical in my opinion at least are just homemade items that are things that you use frequently so Soap is a very good example. You can make your own soap, whether it be a bar of soap or hand soap that's in a squirt bottle. There's lots of different type of soap that you can make. My wife makes our own liquid soap that we use for washing our hands, and it works great. It's really cheap, and she can control what's in it and what it's made out of and how it works, what smell it has, all the different things. And so that's something we can just create on our own. You can even do things like laundry detergent or dishwasher soap or lots of different things. We tried that. It didn't work as well with our appliances, but there are plenty of people I know of that make their own and it works great. But the biggest advantage of that is it is super cheap to buy the ingredients. And at least when we did it, we made this giant tub of it that lasted for about a year Now, again, granted, it didn't work well with our washer and the dishwasher one. We finally were able to get one that worked decently, um, but it kind of does depend on your appliance. You need to cater it to that. It depends on the type of water you have. If you have water that is harder or more acidic or whatever the case may be, you might have to change the ratios. So you'll have to do some test batches and figure out what works best for your dishwasher, for your washer or whatever you're using and cater it to what you want. You tweak it. It's like a recipe for cooking some sort of casserole. You might want to tweak it. Maybe you don't like it, or maybe uh, it needs a different amount of cooking time based on your oven, or the type of pan you have it in means that you have to do something else in order to get it to bake correctly, or you know, whatever. You adjust the recipe according to what you want. It's the same thing when it comes to any homemade item. So those are some good examples There are others such as mosquito repellent. So you can make some mosquito spray or some bug spray that you can spray on yourself. You can make ones that actually do work. Again, that's something that we have done. We use it on our kids, and it doesn't have all kinds of harmful chemicals in it, and it's not ridiculously expensive. So there are many pluses here. Same with toothpaste. We've made our own toothpaste, and that's actually fairly easy to do. It's fairly cheap, and it doesn't have anything in it that 
might be questionable. Some people don't agree with some of the ingredients in most mainstream lines of toothpaste. So that's an option. Deodorant is one that you wouldn't think of, but you can actually make that on your own. Perfume is probably a more obvious one and one that you can definitely do. You can make some nice vanilla scents or my personal favorite, but there are plenty of options for whatever you want and whatever you're into. Now, beyond kind of everyday type items that are really practical, there's plenty of other stuff you can make yourself. And the options are just about endless here. It could be anything from jewelry to clothes to home decor, to furniture or shelving or a chicken coop or doghouse or build your own toys. I mean, all kinds of stuff you can make yourself out of things that you have. Or even if you have to go out and buy some materials, it's not that big of a deal. You're still spending less money. You are doing this in a way that is increasing your own skill, keeping your reliance to yourself. And that's another big part of that. We talked about this last time when we talked about things that are really basically crucial for survival, things like food and energy and stuff. You don't want to have to rely on the government, on the state, on other people, on other institutions, other stores. You want to be able to be self-reliant. And when you have the skills to do this, and as you do it, and you practice, and you experiment, you build those skills. So having those skills is one thing. And number two, just doing it. Make sure that you are able to do it and that you have done something completely on your own. So that lowers your reliance on other people, on other stores, on other institutions. And that's good. That's part of agorism. I mentioned making your own clothes. Gandhi was a really good example of this where part of the movement that he was involved with did involve agorism. Now, he didn't call it agorism. I'm don't believe that the term was coined yet. I'm not sure. I'd have to go back and double check the dates and everything. But when Gandhi was participating in trying to create equality and break away from the British and from racism and all kinds of stuff, one of the things that he really promoted was for the local Indians to participate in agorist principles. He told them to create their own clothes. There was a point in time when spinning wheels were officially outlawed and confiscated because apparently they were competing with other products coming out of the British markets, and so they just got rid of them in India. Well, Gandhi kept his, and he encouraged others to keep theirs and make their own clothes. But it wasn't just clothes. It's make all your own stuff. It was produce food on your own. He encouraged people to rip up their identification documents and all kinds of stuff like this where it was civil disobedience from an agorist perspective in a peaceful way, which he is known for, and he actually did make a huge difference through these movements. There was a lot more he was involved in. There's activism and all kinds of stuff, but... The cool thing is that it really was largely an agorist movement, even though it's not typically thought of as agorism. So that's pretty cool. But moving on from making your own things, there is one more layer to that. And that is when you do make your own things and you're able to make your own things, 
that opens up another option to get back into peer-to-peer markets where you buy and sell these extra things you make. So if you make a giant batch of hand soap, for example, and you did like a whole gallon of it, well, maybe you keep half a gallon and you pour up the rest into some squirt bottles and sell them to people that you know that appreciate having something where they know what the ingredients are, they know it works well, you can usually sell it pretty cheap because you bought the materials in bulk really cheap, and that's an option. Or you can barter. You can trade them this hand soap that you made for, who knows, maybe they made some dog treats for their dogs and your dogs really like treats and you trade them some hand soap for some dog treats or who knows what, whatever you're into, whatever they're into. And this applies to food. I didn't mention this, I don't believe, in the previous episode, but it's the same thing. If you're growing food or, say, you're brewing beer and you have a big batch of beer, well, maybe you have a bunch of beer and you're not going to drink it all. You don't need it all, but you brewed a whole batch. And so you just barter the extra beer that you have in exchange for maybe some apples from someone that has an apple tree or someone that has a garden that really produced a ton of zucchini this year and so you trade some beer for some zucchini or whatever this can apply to anything it can apply to food it can apply to drink it can apply to things you 3d print you can 3d print stuff for people and then actually sell it to them there are plenty of online options for this there are people that have uh, gotten involved in the entrepreneurial spirit and offer their services of 3D printing things. They'll design something for you and print it for you and then ship it to you. You can do that if you have a 3D printer for other people that you know. And same with making things. If you can make a doghouse and a friend of yours needs a doghouse, well, you can make them one. And yes, you charge them for it. But again, it's a voluntary transaction that we can participate in in a true market from an agorist perspective. So there are lots of options here. Now, it doesn't just involve things. We can do the same with services. So if you have some handyman experience, some construction experience or maintenance or whatever, those are very handy skills that not everyone has. Knowing some trade skills can be very valuable and you can use those trade skills and exchange those for someone else's skills or someone else's things or whatever. Maybe you build or work on computers, and that's something that you can do and barter or sell with others. You can design websites, or who knows what. Maybe you have some extra rooms in your house, and you put it up on Airbnb, or you have an extra car, and you put it up on Turo, or whatever. There's so many different options here, but they all can involve markets that are completely voluntary and peer-to-peer and individualistic outside of the scope of the state and therefore part of the agorist mindset. So those are some really good options. So as we fade away from physical items, we're talking about services here. I'll mention free stuff and then we'll get into things related to money and finance. So free stuff, there are plenty of free options out there for us that we can take advantage of. If you want to educate yourself, you have plenty of resources online. There's free lectures, there's free courses, You can do podcasts like this, for example. There are plenty of options for you. There are free books out there and plenty of free stuff that you can take advantage of. Obviously, if it's free, then you are not paying any taxes on it. There is likely not any regulation applied to it. 
and it is generally going to be a voluntary transaction. It's pretty basic. So that's what we want. You can apply this to things like events. So if there is a local music festival, well, plenty of times you have to buy a ticket for that. But there are also plenty of times where cities will have just free music venues and you can go and listen to some music and hang out. Maybe there's other festivals that you can go to that happen in your local area or community, maybe an art festival or who knows what. There's all kinds of stuff that communities do that are just free. You can go and do it. Just like if you want to just get out and do something yourself or with a friend or a spouse or someone you're dating or your family or whatever, you can go to plenty of places for free without having to pay anything. You can go to the park. You can oftentimes go to some local trails. You can go hiking. You can do so many different things. Go to the lake or the river or the creek or Whatever it is, wherever you are, there are free options to take advantage of. So that's another good option. With this, what about cord cutting? Now, oftentimes people will cut the cord, which means not pay for cable services, but instead they'll pay for streaming services. You also have the option of not paying for anything and instead just using free content. There are plenty of free videos out there and free information, free options for entertainment. So you can truly cut the cord and not replace it with anything that has a subscription or that you have to pay for. That is an option for you. It's definitely worth looking into. Another relatively free option would be where you exercise and where you work out. So I say relatively free because maybe you want some weights or some workout equipment or some stuff in order to get a good workout in for whatever you do. If you are into lifting weights, then you probably want to have some weights. If you are really big into running, then maybe you want either a treadmill to do it at home or you want a good pair of running shoes or trail running shoes if you're into that. Whatever you're into, you might have to buy something to be able to do this on your own, but there are plenty of options of doing it on your own without paying for a trainer or paying for a gym subscription or whatever it is you would pay for to encourage yourself to exercise and give you a way to facilitate that exercise. Instead, you can do it on your own. You can work out at your own house doing all kinds of different things. You can work out outside. You can go to a park. You can go to a track. You can go to a trail. You can do so many different things without having to really pay any money. Again, depending on what you want to do, you might have to spend some upfront to get things that facilitate whatever it is you're into, but that's not even necessary. Just because you like lifting weights doesn't mean you have to buy weights. You could do plenty of body weight exercises. You can do pull-ups on a tree. You can do push-ups anywhere you are, things like sit-ups, things like squats. You can get old milk jugs, fill them with water, so many different options. You can get giant logs, throw them on your back and do lunges. I mean, there are so many different things you could do for free. So that's another good option for how do you take advantage of a free option out there? So that is it for services and such other random transitioning things. Let's get into money. Now, one of the most important principles when it comes to money is that it is probably the most important, most impactful, 
most influential thing that you can do to impact anything, to impact society, to impact your community, to impact the government, whatever, your money has the biggest impact out of anything. I would argue that how you spend your money, where you spend your money, how you use your money, I would argue that that has a much bigger impact on society and even specifically on government than voting. Now, whether or not this is actually true, it'd be very hard to prove and it's not worth getting into. But the point is that there is a lot of weight behind money. You can vote with your money. We do live in a quasi-capitalist society right now, as far as our economy is concerned, and I'm talking about the majority of the civilized world when I say that, not just America. But with that, companies do want um, to make a profit. They do want to meet demand. Supply and demand is a big factor, and that is how people make a lot of decisions when it comes to business. That is also how a lot of decisions are made in the government. They are related to budgets. There's only so much people are willing to spend in taxes. And although government budgets are completely overblown, completely wasted, completely inefficient, there are so many problems with them. And to some degree, they kind of have unlimited resources. To another degree, they really don't. There are some caps, and it is more difficult to get more money the higher their budgets get. And so if you can withhold some of that money, and plenty of the rest of us also are withholding a lot of our money, then that really starts to pinch on their pockets and pinch on their options for their budgets. And so yes, we can influence businesses, we can influence governments, we can even influence individuals around us. So if I am willing to buy local honey from someone that has bees, then I am encouraging that person to continue having bees and getting honey and harvesting that and selling it to people. I can encourage that activity through buying it. If no one bought his honey, he might stop having bees and not deal with harvesting it, not deal with anything related to bees anymore. It's not worth it. No one wants it. No one's buying it. So why would I do it? Yes, you can do it for yourself, but if it produces 10 times what you need for yourself, then is there really much of a point? But if me and others like me are willing to buy it from them and spend our money on that, then that supports him in doing this activity and they will likely at least continue if not grow. And so that's what we want to do. We want to encourage everything related to agorist activity. And this can take so many different forms as we have already covered by now. So let's start off with an example that is related to what we've just talked about, and that is to be self-employed. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be self-employed for your full-time job, although that would be ideal because entrepreneurship is one of the main driving factors in a truly voluntary market and in agorism in general. But Again, it doesn't have to be full-time. Usually, this would just take the form of a side gig. And there are many different advantages to this. And this can take many different forms, obviously. Maybe you are a carpenter and you can do some carpentry work on the side. Or you design websites, you can do that on the side. I, I mentioned a lot of these examples a few minutes ago, so you can recall those types of examples. But there are plenty of things that you can do as little side gigs 
that number one will make you some extra money. And that's always nice. We always want more money to use in the way that we choose and to vote with that money, have an impact with our money. And that gives us more options if we can do that. We are also providing something for people, which is good. We want to contribute to society, to our community, to our fellow people, our family members, our friends. We want to help people. Ideally, hopefully you want to help people. Um, That's not guaranteed. But hopefully, if you're into this kind of stuff, that is at least on your radar. And that is something you accomplish when you do side gigs, as long as you are not ripping people off, which again, hopefully you are not participating in. So giving you the benefit of the doubt, you are helping people, you are making extra money, you are increasing self-sufficiency. Like I mentioned before, if you are able to do these things and you work on these things, you practice them, you perfect them, that increases the level of self-sufficiency that you operate on. This can take multiple different forms. It can be physical things, or like I mentioned, technical type things. And there are even apps and websites and stuff that help facilitate this. Moonlighting is the example that comes to mind. It's an app. I believe it's a website. I'm not really sure, but it's somewhere you can go on and people post things that they need done. And some people post skills that they have and it match makes people. Uh, Someone might post that they need an article written for their website. Then they might have 10 different people say, Hey, I can write for your website, I can write that article. Here's some examples of things I've done. This is the budget that I would give you to do it. And the person ideally had posted a budget when they posted what they needed done for this article for their website. And then it hooks people up. They can hire basically whoever they want to to write this article based on the things people had sent them. And that is a voluntary transaction between two people, a very little state involvement involved. And so there are ways of facilitating these things aside from just doing peer-to-peer, people you know, friends of friends of friends, that kind of thing, word of mouth. Although that would be ideal. You work within your local community. It is word of mouth. That's kind of the ideal. But there are other options that are good options that you can take advantage of to help facilitate this. Now, another advantage of being self-employed, even just to a tiny extent, is that if you are participating within the state network and state regulations, then you have told them that you are operating some sort of side business. And when you do that, you get a business license. It's usually not a big deal. I have done this before. You basically, at least where I am, you go to the courthouse, you fill out a form and you pay like 20 bucks and that's about all that's involved. All of a sudden you are a business owner. So it's really easy. But The big advantage here is that you get some major tax breaks and tax advantages. So with being self-employed, you can write off just about anything related to business activity. So let's say you go out to eat and you discuss work. Well, then you can write off that meal as a business expense. What if you buy some clothes that you are going to wear during working hours? Well, write it off. What about groceries that you use to make your lunch or make your dinner or breakfast or whatever it is that you're going to eat during your working hours and as a part of your working day? Well, you can write that off. There are so many different things you can write off. You can write off office space in your own home. You can write off just all kinds of things. There are many other tax advantages, tax credits, 
if you are minority of some kind or oftentimes if you are a female and a business owner, you get even bonus breaks and bonus credits. There are just lots of different really cool options of taking money away from the state in the form of lowering your tax burden. So that's another good thing. Now, speaking of taxes, taxes is another big part of this because the reality is we do owe taxes to the government. Whether or not that is moral, whether or not they have a right to require you to pay taxes for given things or use your tax money for other given things, we're not getting into that in this episode. We will get into that in our next series on The Immorality of Government will probably be the main episode where we'll talk about that. But for this episode, we are just accepting that this is the system we live in. Now, you can make the choice not to pay your taxes. So let me give an example of this. The best one I can think of would be Peter Schiff's dad. Peter Schiff is an economist, and he has his own podcast. I would actually recommend it if you're into economics and market coverage from more of an Austrian economics perspective. But his dad was really big on the fact that the government had no right to tax him with income tax. And he had a very good argument that this was unconstitutional. He took this to court and fought it. And like I said, had a really well laid out argument. He could prove that income taxes were unconstitutional. What happened? Well, he ended up going to jail. Not only did he end up going to jail, but he actually ended up dying while he was incarcerated. And so it's not a very pleasant story. It's not very good. And so Peter Schiff, for example, says that he agrees with his dad that it is immoral and unconstitutional for the government to collect taxes in that way, but he still pays them anyway because it's not worth the consequences. Another interesting side note would be that Peter Schiff's dad, his name was Erwin Schiff, by the way, he wrote a book called The Federal Mafia, and that book is one of two books to ever be banned by the U.S. government. The only other book that was ever banned by the U.S. government was considered pornography in its day, and that was Fanny Hill, but the other one was The Federal Mafia that was banned. And in that book, Erwin Schiff lays out his argument how the income tax system and the Internal Revenue Service, the IRS, are both illegal, that they are unconstitutional, and that there is no reason why they should be allowed to exist. And read into it what you will, that that book was then banned and he ended up dying while in jail. His son said he was a political prisoner, and in many ways, yes, it would be hard to argue against that. Now, back to taxes. The whole point is that unless you want to risk some similar reactions by the state, then you probably should pay your taxes. Now, if you are a Christian or someone that follows the Christian Bible, you will probably recognize that Jesus and Paul both also mentioned to pay your taxes in some way or another. Some argue that Jesus was actually saying that you shouldn't pay your taxes, but he couldn't just outright say that, and then they accused him of saying that later on. He didn't deny it. So, yeah, well... Even if you grant that exception, Paul definitely does say pay your taxes. And his point, his main argument, he has two. Number one is that it's a matter of conscience. 
The second one is to avoid punishment, that it is not worth the consequences. You don't want to bring that upon yourself and upon the church and upon those around you. So just pay your taxes so that you don't have to deal with everything that comes with that, even if it is immoral. At the time, they were paying taxes to Rome, who was murdering Christians at the state level and torturing people, crucifying them, all kinds of stuff, horrible stuff. Obviously, they didn't want to support that. And even then, Paul was saying, go ahead and pay your taxes. So whether you look at it from a biblical perspective or from a practical perspective or just from a realistic perspective, paying your taxes is something you should probably do. And it's just a part of everyday life for most of us, at least. But if you are going to pay them, then pay as little as possible. And that's the overall point. Take advantage of all the tax write-offs you can. There are so many of them. That is why so many very wealthy people pay very little taxes, is because they take advantage of all these different things. That is why all these little things are in the tax code. That's why the tax code is so huge, because people have lobbied and written legislation and found loopholes and created those loopholes and put them into the tax code so that certain people will not have to pay much in taxes. So... You take advantage of that, too. You are perfectly capable. There are tax write-offs. There are plenty of deductions. I mentioned being self-employed. That is a very good one. There are lots of tax credits where they'll support certain activities that you do and things that you buy. There are plenty of loopholes. Don't feel bad about taking advantage of a loophole. Believe me, they do not feel bad about taking your tax money and bombing innocent civilians on the other side of the globe. So don't worry about it. Not a big deal. Take advantage of a loophole. It is in the tax code. So you are not doing anything illegal. You are just abiding by their rules. If their rules are stupid or if they are very vague or leave themselves open to be taken advantage of, then that is definitely their fault, not yours. And I would recommend taking advantage of it. In addition to your personal tax burden, You also participate in paying taxes in other ways. Now, there is the one that is inflation. Not much you can do about that, except actually there may be. We'll talk about cryptocurrencies here in a little bit. And yeah, I think that might work out. Let's talk about that then. But first, in general, you can't avoid inflation. So what other taxes do you pay? You pay property taxes, you pay sales taxes, you pay gas taxes, you pay alcohol taxes, you pay income taxes, you pay lots of taxes. So yeah, it sucks. But that's life. That's what we live under. So if you are going to be doing this, then just realize that there are many different types of taxes. But with that means that there are many different ways of avoiding taxes. So one way is to support and take advantage of businesses and services that pay less taxes than other options for you. Some examples of this would be like Airbnb versus a hotel. Well, hotels have to pay a lot more taxes to their local authorities usually than an Airbnb owner does. The Airbnb owner still does pay taxes, and there are more taxes than what you would probably think, but not nearly as many as the hotel owner has to pay in order to participate in the zoning regulations and take advantage of operating a hotel or motel or whatever. There's a lot more involved there. The homeowner is already paying their property taxes on their property. The hotel owner 
is not already paying them before they have a hotel where they can rent out rooms. So the hotel owner has to pay all these property taxes that they wouldn't have paid otherwise. The homeowner is already paying the property taxes. So even though they are paying them, there is no increase by you taking advantage of renting out a room from them. So that's a good example of less taxes in total that go to the state if you're renting an Airbnb room versus a hotel room. Same thing when it comes to cars. The difference between Uber and a taxi is that taxis oftentimes do have to pay a lot more for the right to be a taxi, and they usually pay taxes to their local jurisdiction, and Uber doesn't necessarily do this. So that's a good option, not just Uber, Lyft, you know, whatever, any ride-hailing app or service. So there are other kind of broader options here. There are plenty of tax-free opportunities. Tax-free shopping is something to definitely take advantage of. Oftentimes, locally, you will have some special days, like a back-to-school tax-free weekend or something, where you can buy many different types of items without paying any taxes on it. That's something to take advantage of. You may not be in school or have any kids in school or have anything to do whatsoever, even agree with the public school system, but you can still take advantage of the back-to-school sale. So do so and pay no taxes. That is a good option. What about things like states that have lower taxes that you are close to the border of? That is another good thing to take advantage of. Just drive across the border, buy whatever it is you're going to buy, especially if it's a big-ticket item pay less taxes, and come back home. So yes, take advantage. There are online sites. Geodeckers is a good option. I've bought appliances from them before, and it is tax-free. That was a big deal when you buy multiple appliances because those are big-ticket items. So there are online options. So there are many options of being able to take advantage of not paying as much in taxes and therefore not supporting the state as much as you would have otherwise, and therefore participating in counter-economics and agorism to some extent at least. So that is a good example set for taxes. Now, what about the fact that you are saving a lot of money? If you're participating in everything we've talked about to this point, you are growing your own food, you are providing some of your own electricity and your own water, you are creating things on your own, you're reusing, repurposing things, you're participating in markets where there is no taxes and you're getting things cheaper, you should be much better off from a budget perspective, a finance perspective, than you would have otherwise under what most people would consider normal conditions. So, When you have more money, you have more options. We mentioned how you vote with your money and you have a great impact with your money. What do you do with that? Well, first, you could just take advantage of it. It's nice to have more money, so enjoy it. That is one option. But the more fitting option would be to use it for something that has an impact. So although there are many times that these types of options will save you money, there are times when they will actually cost more money. That also does happen. But if you're saving money on all these other things, then you could afford easily to spend a little extra on some other things if you want to support a person or a cause. So if someone is growing vegetables organically and working really hard at it, you want to support that, even though you can buy some cheaper vegetables at you know, a local grocery store at Aldi or Walmart or wherever, 
maybe you pay a little extra and support this person and this endeavor and this market, and it can be worth it. I would encourage that, that use the money you save on other things that you want to support. What about charities and crowdfunding and nonprofits? There are all kinds of places that support causes that you believe in and that can make an impact on the world or on your local community or on who knows what. Give to those things. And it doesn't have to be an organization. It can be just a person. What if there is someone that is down on their luck that you know they their house was broken into and they lost stuff or their house burned down and they just need a little help? Insurance can get going to give them money, but they don't have it yet. Or maybe you just want to do something nice for somebody. Buy someone a gift that... You know, there doesn't have to be a reason. You can just do something nice for people. There can be a reason, though. What if you want to support someone that is just doing something that you believe in? What about, this is a good example, a podcast. So let's say you really agree with the content that I am putting out there and you really want to support that, make sure I am going to continue producing content and put more out there and you want to contribute to my research so I can buy more audiobooks and, you know, whatever the case may be, you want to contribute to that, then support me and give me money. And this is not a call or me begging you for money, but I am using myself as as an example. I personally have given to other podcasters that produce content that I believe are important. Typically, I will not do that for an entertainment show myself, even though they may be very entertaining and that kind of stuff. I don't feel like it's necessary to have that out there in the world. But there are some that are more on the educational or intellectual side that I personally feel is a big benefit for society if everyone in the world has free access to this information or this discussion or this whatever, this content of some kind that is being produced by a certain podcast. So I support that and I can give money to that. That's a good option. But you can do the same thing in many different formats for any individual or any group that is doing something that you really believe in. You can give to that and you should be giving to that. If you're taking advantage of a lot of these ideas, you have the money to do that. I mentioned crowdfunding. There are plenty of, especially artists and musicians that are wanting to put out a CD, that they are just raising money so they can do that. You're not necessarily buying anything from them. You're just supporting them and supporting what they're doing. That's a good thing. There is actually a movie, a documentary that's being created now. I don't know if they've actually started doing the interviews yet, but it's on a stateless society on the history of anarchy and what stateless society would or could look like and all this kind of stuff, interviewing people like Ron Paul and Tom Woods and Bob Murphy and a lot of big names in those circles, at least. And that's something that I would like to support. I actually have not done so, but I was planning on it. I got on there yesterday to look it up. It's on Indiegogo. And if you want more information on that, just ask me. I'll send it to you, send you a link. But that is another example of something that me personally, I would like to support and am planning on supporting and giving some money to that endeavor so that I can contribute and I can be a part of making sure that this gets out there to people because I believe that is very important. This can take the form of so many different things that I will leave it up to you. And that is the best way to do it. It's a lot like education. It's individualized. It is what works best for you, what causes you really believe in, 
what you can afford, what you have the money for. Maybe you are saving money by taking advantage of some of these things, but you just need to save money and you don't really have the ability to use that saved money on something extra or supporting someone. And that's fine. You don't have to. It's just another good thing you can do that's money and finance related. So that is why it's here. Now, moving on, but fairly related would be investing. So this would be support where you do expect something in return. You expect a financial return. Now, investing is typically like a retirement account, an IRA account, or a brokerage account, but it can be many things. You can invest in a startup. You can invest in cryptocurrencies. You can invest in who knows what. You got a buddy that's starting a business. There's lots of different ways to invest. But when you do, again, keep in mind that you vote with your money, that your money has power. So if you are investing in big pharma or big tobacco or some other large industry that has huge lobbying power and is one of the major power brokers and crony capitalism of today, that's probably not something that you really want to support. You should probably support something that is more on the ESG side. So ESG investing would be environmental, social, and governance. Those are the things that are focused on for ESG investing. And that's basically just investing in good companies from a relative and very subjective term. But the idea is that you look at how they impact the environment, how they impact society, and how they are governed, what's their governance structure and CEO pay and gender gaps and just all this different kind of stuff. That's all included in ESG investing. It's supposed to be uh, basically judging the morality of a company. And so that's something to participate in. You can do this through index funds and ETFs and stuff. But what I would recommend is just do the research yourself and invest in individual companies that meet these qualifications. Now, hopefully, if you are into investing and you're figuring this out on your own, you're going to do a lot of research. You're not just going to go out there and buy some company that sounds cool that helps the environment. That's that's not a very good idea. So I do not encourage you to do that. Research things on your own and educate yourself on investing before you take that into your own hands. Ideally, even talk to a financial planner and, yeah, educate yourself. So that's an option that you focus on investing in companies and stocks and index funds that that are supporting things that are not contrary to your beliefs. Again, this is not full-blown agorism because you are still involved in Wall Street, which is definitely not an agorist marketplace. But you are at least using the agorist philosophy to make decisions on what you do with your money. If you have a 401k plan through your work, you don't have many options on how to use that. Now, you actually probably do have options that are outside of the typical 401k format, and that would definitely be worth looking into. But if that's the format that you are using, then there are still ways that you can use your agorist mentality to adapt your investment strategy. Now, another option would be gold. You can just buy a gold index fund or ETF or stock in a gold company or an index fund of gold companies. There's lots of different options there. But gold is something that typically maintains its value and goes up in value as 
an economy goes down or as a currency for a certain country goes down. So if the U.S. dollar begins to lose value, more than likely, historically, gold will gain value. So that's a good thing. If you have been listening to all these episodes, you will probably recognize that, in my opinion, and from a fairly objective point of view, the U.S. dollar is likely to lose value over time, and so gold would probably be a pretty good option. I actually switched a lot of my investments into gold and cash a while ago, and that has been very good. So, that is an option, but you don't have to just do a gold ETF or gold stocks. One of the best ways of doing it is just buying gold. You can actually buy gold, whether it be coins or bars or whatever, and you can do the same with any metal. You can buy platinum or silver or whatever, but that's something you can do where you actually totally control it. You own something. You physically have something that you own. You can put in a safe at your house and it is yours. No one controls it. You don't have to ask permission to withdraw it or pay taxes on it. It's just yours. So that is a good investment option. And there are hybrids here where you can do what's called a self-directed IRA. So if you have an IRA account, a retirement account, you can do a version of that where it is self-directed. And instead of being basically like a brokerage account, it can be invested in other things like real estate or invested in a startup or invested in gold. That's something that I have done before as well, is switched an IRA account to hold physical gold. Now, when you do that and you're doing it through an IRA, there has to be a custodian. You can't just use your IRA to buy gold and keep it at your house yourself. Then you could just sell it or use it to buy things, and that kind of defeats the whole point of an IRA as being a retirement account. So in order to ensure that you do keep this money as an investment, you have to go through a custodian. There are plenty of companies that do this, so you can look that up. Um, there are there are multiple companies that not only do gold, but also cryptocurrencies now. So you can take your IRA money, transfer it to a custodian. They usually do charge a fee for this, but they will physically buy gold or actually digitally, I guess, buy Bitcoin or another cryptocurrency, and they will store it for you. So that's usually where your fees come into play is storage fees because they're physically storing gold coins or they have a digital wallet that is on a secure network or off of a network that is securing your Bitcoin that you personally have a Bitcoin or you have a gold bar that they are holding for you. So it's a physical item, even though you don't physically have it, at least it physically exists and someone has it and you can get access to that. So that's also a step in the right direction. Another advantage of this type of mindset is that it doesn't leave you as reliant on the state, which is what agorism does for you if you put it into practice. And in relation to retirement, that means that you're not completely reliant on things like Social Security and Medicare and government benefits and welfare programs. So ideally, if you are in control of your retirement of your finances and you are more self-reliant in how you take care of yourself and take care of your stuff, then that lowers your reliance on the state, which again is a good thing. That can apply in many ways, but in this example, investing, usually retirement is a good example, health insurance, things like that. You can handle those things on your own without the state, and that is something definitely to 
look into. It is worth checking out. Also related to what we were just talking about in gold and physical items is that you should be investing in physical things. So physical investments are a very good idea because they actually physically exist. If there's a stock market crash, it doesn't matter. You still own something and you have that something. And whether or not the value goes up and down, that something will still exist. So physical investments are very good for a portfolio. The probably most common example of this would be property or real estate, and you could buy a rental house or you could buy some property that you think might go up in value over time or a little vacation cabin. That's a very good example. You could do a vacation cabin and then you rent it out through Airbnb or something and you use it as your own vacation home. And so you save some money, you have more control, you have a side income and it's an investment. Kind of hits many different areas. It's fairly broad in its scope as far as covering a lot of the things we've talked about. So there are options there. Property is, again, one of the most common things. It can also be your property. So if you have an extra $50,000 that you're putting into your retirement account or investment account, well, maybe if you have a mortgage, it actually might be worth it to put that $50,000 towards your mortgage. And you could pay your mortgage down, maybe even pay your mortgage off, depending on how big your retirement account is or investment account. And then number one, you don't have any debt. You're not reliant on someone else or on a bank. You are more self-sufficient. But number two, the interest rate you are paying on that mortgage is something that you would have to outperform on in an investment. So if you had that money in an investment account, let's say your mortgage rate is 4% or let's say 5%. That's more of an easy round number there. So 5% is your mortgage rate that you're paying interest on. So if you were to take your, let's say $50,000, put it in an investment account, you would have to at least make 5% a year growth on that money in order to just break even. You obviously would have to make more than 5% to actually earn any money when you're comparing the two options of investing or paying your mortgage down. So instead of requiring you to make a greater than 5% return, which you definitely cannot guarantee in any market, you can actually guarantee that you lower your need for a return by 5% on that money by just paying down your mortgage. So you can net benefit 5% every year by paying your mortgage down. And you may benefit 10%, make 10% profit on the money you would have invested, but you also may lose 10% on the money you would have invested. So you can either guarantee a 5% net gain, or you can gamble on whether or not you want to make more than 5%. So, you know, that option's up to you. But as far as investing in property goes, this doesn't have to be an investment property. You can invest in your own property and still apply these principles, and it can be very useful. So we talked about gold and metals. That's another obvious physical investment. Even collectibles, you could do paintings, or uh, some people would get into, like, baseball cards and collectible items of that sort that gets a little more risky. Antique cars is another one. I I would probably recommend, at least personally, sticking more towards metals and property and more mainstream assets. But if you are into less mainstream assets, another very good option would be digital assets. So that would be cryptocurrencies, but also 
other types of digital assets, they can take many forms. Again, we will talk about that in the blockchain episodes that will be upcoming, but there are, for example, security tokens and virtual real estate and just all kinds of stuff, digital art, lots of stuff that you can actually buy and truly own through blockchain technology and use that as an investment vehicle. It is an option. There's lots of options. And that space is growing very rapidly with all kinds of possibilities that who knows where this will go. But digital assets are another example. And I put that under the physical investments category, even though it's digital and not necessarily physical. But when you're talking about blockchain, it actually does exist. It is a thing. It can't just randomly be created or destroyed without your control. And so it is something. It has substance, even if it's not a physical substance. So again, you'll probably if you if you don't know anything about blockchain or cryptocurrencies then yeah it's not worth trying to fit that into a 30 second explanation just wait for our blockchain episodes and you will understand much better then and it will all make sense but point being that's another option the other thing that i would mention would be capital goods is what i would call them at least things that will save you money or make you money long term so if you are going to invest your money into something, sometimes that something can be something that you purchase for yourself that will help you in the long run. That could be something like a 3D printer in an earlier example. That could be something like maybe farmland that you then use to farm on or investing in putting in a bunch of fruit trees so that five years from now you have a big orchard and you're producing all this stuff or maybe into cattle and you're going to have uh, cows and raise beef or who knows what there's so many different options out there uh, uh, not even worth trying to touch on all the different categories but it could be any industry any service anything just something that makes you money or saves you money in the long run that's an investment And so you can invest in that up front and benefit from that down the road. That's investing. So that is another very good option. And that can take, again, many different forms. I mentioned cryptocurrencies with digital assets. And another point to make on that is outside of the investment sphere and more on just the monetary system sphere of agorism. So Anytime you're participating in a market, you are typically going to be using the money that is mandated by a government. And that money is taxed. That money is created by the government and usually expanded and therefore is subject to inflation, which would be the hidden tax that I mentioned earlier and have mentioned in many different episodes. But the point is that cryptocurrency is outside of all that. There is no state that controls at least decentralized currencies, cryptocurrencies. And so with an option like Bitcoin or probably better example would be maybe Monero or Pivx or something like that, then you have these currencies that you can transact in that the government has no control over. And if you're using a privacy coin like Zcash, Monero, Pivx, something like that, then they can't track it. They can't trace it. They know nothing about it. And you are truly existing outside of the system. Now, you are opening up yourself for risk. 
because if you put, let's say, $10,000 worth of U.S. dollars into, say, Monero, well, Monero may lose value in relation to the U.S. dollar, and so your $10,000 just went down to $8,000, and there is basically no reason, as far as you are concerned at least, you just switched your money, converted it to Monero, and all of a sudden lost value. And so, yeah, you don't want that. But there are plenty of what are called stable coins, where they are digital currencies, they're cryptocurrencies that track mainline, mainstream uh, currency denominations. So there are stable coins that one coin is equal to one dollar at all times, or one coin is equal to one euro at all times, or one coin is equal to this basket of mainstream currencies, national currencies. And either way, the point is that it stays relatively stable, at least as stable as these government currencies will, which is, you know, historically fairly stable. And so those are some options. So maybe you put your money into cryptocurrencies, but you keep it in a stable coin, and that's kind of your bank account. Then when you're ready to spend it, you convert from the stable coin to Monero, and then you can do a private transaction, and that's an option. Again, probably getting a little more complicated than I should here. But I I mentioned earlier in this episode that uh, inflation is something you can't really avoid. Well, if your money is in a cryptocurrency, inflation does not affect that. There, There are some cryptocurrencies that take advantage of inflation to some degree, but it's spelled out ahead of time. It's usually very limited, and most of them do not do that. Most of them are actually deflationary, where there is only a limited number, like Bitcoin, for example. Only 21 Bitcoin will ever be created. Once it hits that point, no more will be created. So there is no inflation whatsoever. In theory, what will happen is through supply and demand aspects, the price and value will actually increase over time once you hit that cap of how many are created. And so instead of there being inflation and your currency losing value, there would actually be deflation and your currency would gain value. That's just like many countries had when they were actually on a physical gold or silver standard. If you held on to your gold, oftentimes it would gain in value. Typically, the only time it wouldn't is when a war would come on, a government would print more money, and they would use paper notes instead of gold. And so the ratio of gold backing the paper is lower. And so the value of the currency is lower. And so you have those periods of relatively mass inflation. They're usually temporary. Then they would come back down after the war was over. And then your currency again starts gaining in value. That all happened at least fairly regularly until the Federal Reserve came into play and central banks took over, and now that no longer exists in any form in any major country, at least that I can think of. So moving on to the final example, I wanted to mention insurance. So I mentioned not being reliant on the state for Medicare and Social Security and that kind of stuff. A lot of that is insurance-related. Well, how do you do that? A lot of times, the best way would be to fund it yourself. And you can do that many different ways. One way would just be to have, if you want to go through official channels, have an HSA, a health savings account. You can put money into it tax-free. So again, you're avoiding taxes. That's great. And it sits in this account, and then you use that for your medical expenses. And so you are paying less in taxes, which is good, and you are funding your own account to pay your medical bills with. Now, you can do this with an insurance 
policy and you use the money to pay your deductible and that kind of thing. But you can also do it if you are basically working on a cash-based system. So you can fund an account, use that as basically your own personal private insurance, and then when you need something done, you pay cash for it. Oftentimes when you do this, you can get a much, much lower rate than what the doctor would charge an insurance company. There are actually plenty of offices that specialize in this and only deal in cash transactions. Then you might be able to get a surgery done for $2,000 that normally would have charged $25,000 to an insurance company if going through a normal pathway in the normal system. And so that's a really good option. Now, if you want some more security, what you can do is get a catastrophic insurance policy where it's a very low monthly rate, but you know something happened where you're out a million dollars for medical coverage, there's no way you can pay for that. Well, at least you don't have to go bankrupt. You can use this catastrophic insurance policy. You're not paying much for it, and it takes care of those catastrophic issues. But the rest of the time, you fund it yourself, you pay cash, you get much cheaper rates than usual, and you have a lot more control over it. You're doing it tax-free. So there could be plenty of advantages there. That's a very good option to at least look into. Another one would be health share programs. There are many of these. A lot of these, though, are religious in nature. So some of them require that you be part of a certain religion or denomination or have certain beliefs, but not all of them. And the way this works is it's like a private insurance in a sense. They say it's not insurance and it technically isn't. But what happens is you get paired with a large group of people. They all pool in their money together and then it's divvied out when people have medical bills they need paid. Now typically with these you're supposed to pay your basic things yourself and pay cash for smaller things and then you use this health share program for larger expenditures and larger operations and things that are, you know, I don't know if there's a certain dollar amount, but in my head, at least I'm thinking something that's, you know, over a thousand dollars, maybe you would turn it into them. But if it's like a hundred dollars that you pay for an office visit and a physical, then just go ahead and pay for it. Another interesting insurance related concept is called the infinite banking concept, the IBC. And with this, the idea is that you become your own bank. So banks are one of those issues where they have a lot of control over your money. You don't actually control your money. It's kind of like owning a house. You don't really own that house. You can't sell it. You can't destroy it. You can't remodel it. You can't sometimes even put a garden on it. You can't really do anything with it without having some sort of government permission or getting some sort of permit for it. And so do you really own it? I don't know. Same with your money. You put your money in the bank. But do they actually physically have your money there? Well, no, they loan it out to other people and it doesn't even exist. And they multiply it 10 times over. And yeah, it's just if, if you don't understand the fractional reserve banking system, look at the episode on the Federal Reserve and the fractional reserve banking system. We have definitely covered this multiple times. But the point is that if you want to operate outside of the banking system, you have an option. Now, I am not getting into detail on this, but I'll at least introduce you to the idea. It was created by a guy named Nelson Nash, and now the way I heard it, and the big proponents of it would be Bob Murphy and Carlos Lara, and they have a podcast, and they have lots of resources out there. You can look it up. I actually really like Bob Murphy. He has a very good podcast if you're into economics. 
then he is definitely the man to go to, especially if you're Austrian in your preferences. But as far as the IBC concept is concerned, what the rough idea is, is that you get a whole life insurance policy and you start paying on it. And what happens is that you start building up this life insurance policy. And then when you need to get money out and you need to get a loan, well, instead of going to the bank to get a loan, let's say you are buying a car or sending your kid to college or whatever, instead of doing that, you take a loan out on your life insurance policy. The rates are generally very low. You can use the money for anything you want. There aren't the same restrictions that exist when you're going to a bank and you are borrowing money off of money that you have already paid into the system and off of the value of your life insurance policy that you own. So you are the one that is in control. You are the one personally contributing to the account and you are sustaining this yourself. You are your own banker. That's the idea. That's the concept, at least. You basically put as much money as you can into it every month. Then you draw out of it in the form of a loan against your policy and you become your own bank. That's the idea. So that's another thing to look into. It works really well for some people, but usually you need to be in a certain position in order to really take advantage of it. But if you can, it's a very good concept to be able to take advantage of. It gives you a lot more self-reliance and self-control, and it can save you some money in a lot of ways. So that's another option to look into. That is pretty much everything that I had related to markets and finance and agorism. Again, any of these things I could do an entire episode on, but it's not worth it. What you need to know and what I should do to introduce you to all these ideas, I believe I have done. And so that is my goal, at least. Hopefully I accomplished it. The final things I want to do is kind of wrap up a few of the concepts related to this stuff. Number one is that you should have no debt. Debt is slavery. Debt is dependence. Use it when it is necessary and if it's far better than any alternatives. But ideally, avoid all debt. If you're in debt, you have to pay interest on it. If you're in debt, you are subject to your debtor. You are a slave to your debtor. There are a lot of reasons to not be in debt. You're also living beyond your means, necessarily, because if you had the means, you wouldn't be in debt. Or some people have the means, but they go in debt anyway because the interest rate they pay on their debt is less than what they think they will gain if they keep their money and invest it. So what they do is they keep their money, invest it, and gain a return on that. Let's say they plan on making a 10% return on their money. Well, then they have a loan where they're only paying 5% on their loan. So if they're paying 5% on the loan, but gaining 10% on the money they kept, then they have a net gain of 5% on the money that they are deciding on what to do with. And so some people will make that decision, and financially, that's a good decision. But if we're talking about agorist philosophy in general, not a good idea still. Still not a good decision because you're giving up control. You're giving up reliance. You're giving up some of your freedom, and that's not what we want to do. That is not following agorism, even though there are times when that can be financially argued as a very good idea. It's never going to be an agorist idea, at least. So take that the way you want, however you want to. In general, with our culture, 
right now we have shifted into a no ownership culture in general. A lot of people are shifting into renting instead of owning. Uh, a lot of things are debt-based. So you don't even own your own land or your own house. And people are just renting something instead of renting an apartment or renting a house even. Uh, people are taking out loans and making payments on their cell phones. That seems ridiculous to me, but it's a normal practice now, and it's not as ridiculous as it once seemed. People are paying on their cars and getting cars that are much nicer and bigger and more expensive than what they really need and going into more debt in order to do so. And a lot of people basically just look at their monthly bills, where if they can pay the monthly bills that they owe for a month, then yeah, might as well take advantage and get as many loans as they can and want to as long as they don't exceed their monthly budget. Well, that's not a very good financial philosophy to have. Ideally, you get what you need. And if you have to go in debt for it, so be it. Sometimes that's necessary. But that's it. You probably don't need most of the stuff that you go into debt for. So don't. And if you are trying to live out an agorist perspective or a sound financial perspective, then that's something you really have to take to heart. Basically, be responsible for yourself, for your family, for your finances. You should be the one in control. You should be the one that makes the decisions on how your money is spent and who is in control of your money. If you're going into debt, you're giving up control. If you are just buying something without thinking about it, without looking for other options, then you are not really taking responsibility over your money and your finances and also over the power that is wielded through money and spending and buying and commerce. So that's something you should do. You should be aware of that. You should be focused on what's truly good and right and profitable not just in a monetary sense, not just materialism and consumerism, but focused on things that truly are good and right and profitable. You profit from building strong relationships, but you're likely not going to make any money off of it. You might actually lose money off of it because you might be giving some of your money to help someone out. But building that strong relationship is much more valuable than a small amount of money. So focus on value from an overall kind of meta perspective versus value strictly on a monetary perspective. Don't be that narrow-minded. Open up a little bit and look at things uh, from a more meta perspective in general, from a broad perspective. Look at things for what they are in relation to everything else, not just for what they are in this narrow, small scope. As you are building relationships, ideally, you are also building alliances, you are building connections, you're building networks that you can use to implement all of these agorist principles we're talking about. You are opening up your market base where if you have some extra stuff that you're creating, then you have people that you know that might want said stuff. Or if you need something, you probably have people that you know or people that you know who know somebody who can get you said stuff. And so you're not going to have that if you don't build relationships, if you don't know people, if you don't communicate with people, if you don't hang out with people, 
if you're not focused on that at all, and building relationships is something you actually have to be focused on. If you just live your life and let life happen without actually being intentional, then strong relationships are probably not going to happen. But they should. And that is your responsibility. So take responsibility, build relationships, build alliances, and in doing so, you are not building dependencies. When you go on autopilot, you are building dependencies. Even though you are not actively participating, the system is designed to make you dependent. And if you do nothing but just let the system take control of your life, then you will be dependent. That's just reality. There's no getting around that. And so take control, take responsibility, be future focused in general. Don't focus just on what you have now, just on what you can get now, but focus on 10 years out, 20 years out, 50 years out, your kids and your grandkids, not only focused on those things, but keep them in mind, have balance in all things, balance and moderation. That is one of the key philosophies in life, no matter who you are, or what you do. And that should apply to your finances as well. Don't just look at this month or this year. Look at the next decade, the next 20 years. Like I said, even your kids, your inheritance that you pass along, hopefully you pass along some sort of inheritance or at least a legacy. It doesn't have to be financial or money but a legacy of some kind or a philosophy that you pass along or education that you give or, yeah, morality, whatever it is, there are things that you value. There are things that you want. There are goals that you have. It, go after them. You, you have to take control. You have to be intentional about it in order for those things to happen. And if you're not, then they're not going to happen. So in general, the overall concept here is that we should all be helping to create a more voluntary society without force, without coercion, without slavery of any kind. Now, obviously, we don't have the same type of slavery that existed in early America, but debt is a form of slavery. There is such thing as being a wage slave. There are lots of different forms of slavery. When you are giving up control and giving up the products of your labor, which you are doing if you are working within the system and living within the system, that is a form of slavery. Of hey, You can argue if it's mild slavery or strong slavery, but it is slavery. And so we don't want slavery. We don't want coercion. We don't want force. But we are the ones that are really in control of a lot of this. If the majority of people in a country followed agorist principles, then a lot of this stuff in the system would necessarily start to disappear just because it's not funded, just because there's no demand for it, because people just aren't participating and they won't legitimize a system or recognize a system. And so that system won't exist. A lot of systems are more social constructs than they are anything else. Who is the government? There, There is no person. There is no group of people unless you go to like the thousands of people. If you kill, let's say, a thousand people that are all the top thousand people in government, the government still exists. It's still there because it's just this vague social construct idea. That's how all these systems are. And so who has the power? Well, everybody that lives within the system, which is you, which is me. And so if we want to help promote a voluntary society, and we want to avoid force and coercion, 
then we have to take responsibility. We have to act on that. Now, the next episode that I'll be getting into will include a lot of this stuff on taking personal responsibility, on educating yourself, on how you can have more of an impact, how you can participate in activism and promote social change. All of that stuff will be in the next episode from now. And after we get done with that episode, then we'll move into some actual examples. I've been doing a lot of research on some of those specific examples, and they're very interesting, at least to me. I believe that you as listeners will find them very interesting as well if you find this podcast interesting. If you don't find this podcast interesting, then don't listen to it. I mean, unless you have some other motivation, you maybe find it educational for something you really want to know about, then cool. But if it's just for entertainment, go find something you're actually interested in that you'll actually learn from and remember. And yeah, enjoy. But if you are listening right now, you're probably interested in this podcast, and therefore you will likely be interested in the upcoming examples that we'll be discussing for individuals that participate in agorism and communities that live in these types of ways with voluntary transactions, and that will be the wrap-up of this series. So, yes, I hope you enjoyed if you have not done so, leave a rating, leave a review. All you have to do is click some stars. Even if your podcast app does not have a rating option or a review option, log into iTunes. You can create an account for free if you are willing to spend five minutes, and then you can click or you can type, you know, three sentences out at the very most. Type out five words. I don't care. But if you're willing to leave a review and a rating, it really is beneficial. It really helps. If you're willing to talk about this stuff with people, even if you don't mention the podcast, if you just talk about it and help people to become aware of these ideas and philosophies and ideologies and what's going on, what these systems, how they operate, all this kind of stuff, then do it. That is beneficial. That is the whole point of this podcast. And so... People don't have to actually listen to the podcast to get that. There are other ways of getting it. This is the way that I am contributing to. But if you want to contribute in another way by directly telling people about it and talking about it, then thank you. That is supporting my goals and my ideals. So thank you for that support. Thank you for supporting through the reviews and ratings that have been left. We have gotten some and they have been positive, and I greatly appreciate that. I've gotten some feedback from people, some specific feedback, which is very helpful. If there are specific things that you notice that are issues, that there are problems with the recording, or there is something I say that doesn't sound accurate, or something that you really like or really enjoy, or a topic that you wish I would have gone into more detail on, give me some feedback on that. I really do enjoy hearing that. It's useful. I can incorporate that and tailor this podcast to what you want. Uh, speaking of which, I am working on my outline for season two right now. I think that will be extremely interesting. I'm getting really into it. So as you think about that, if there is some specific concepts or some specific content you want covered in season two or more detail on, get that to me now because I am working on that. There is a post on the Patreon page that anybody can have access to, and you can look at some ideas, uh, more general ideas, and also you can just send me an email and give me your ideas, just period, without looking at anything else. So please do so. There's a link for the website. There's a link for my email address. There's a link for the Twitter account, a link for the Patreon page. There's a link for everything. 
Thank you very much to Nisty, who is the wonderful patron that supports this show. You are greatly appreciated. Thank you. I also appreciate the ideas that you have personally given me and feedback that you have given me. It is helpful, and you are so far the only person to give input on Season 2 and what you want out of it, so that's nice. I have something, and that's because of you. I also have financial support, and that is only because of you, so thank you very much. You're the man. So, continuing on. Actually, I think there will be no continuing on. I'm out. Peace. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.